began to be a, a captain of a brigand of raiders. And he made his living by raiding villages and cities all around until the city that he was from and his brothers remembered him. And the reason why they remembered him was because they were being raided by the Ammonites. And they were thinking, who can save us from this enemy? Well, we have a brother that we maybe shouldn't have kicked out because he is a mighty warrior. He could lead us. He could use his band of misfits to come and help us and to save us. And so Jephthah agrees. And he says, if the Lord gives me the victory in battle, then I will be your leader and you will agree to be my people. And so they agree. Before he goes to fight the battle against the Ammonites, Jephthah makes a rash vow to the Lord. And he tells the Lord, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, then the first person that walks out of my home to greet me as a victor of battle, the first person that comes out of the home to greet me, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering to you. And we find tragically that the person that comes out to greet him is his only daughter, his only child even. And the chapter ends in the tragic loss of Jephthah's daughter. And then here we pick up in chapter number 12. The battle has been won with the Ammonites. And now we see, let's look at verse number 1 in Judges chapter number 12. Let's read the story, verses 1 through 7. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. First, at the beginning of this passage, we find this thin-skinned tribe, Ephraim, once again. And if you remember, if you recall, just four chapters before this, we almost have the exact same event. Do you remember when we were going through the life of Gideon? Gideon had a similar victory over not the, not the uh, Ammonites, but the Midianites. And he fights the Midianites and he wins. And as he's winning, as he's winning the battle, after he wins the battle, 
the same tribe, the Ephraimites, come to him. And let's look, if you turn back a few pages to Judges chapter 8, they say almost the exact same thing to Gideon. Look at chapter 8, verse number 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. We see here that after this, Gideon shows us the principle that a soft answer turns away wrath and he placates towards them and he eases their anger. But what we find here is that the author of Judges is showing us that Ephraim has a personality disorder, if you will. They have a conflict. This isn't a one-time one instance that they have, a mistake. They have a thin-skinned disposition. They think that they're somebody and you don't treat somebody's like nobody's. But the thing is, Ephraim had 18 years to get involved in the battle, but they never did. They never did anything. They were always ready to fight their brother, but never ready to fight the enemy. And since God's Word repeats this same theme twice, so should we. We ought to have a disposition as Christians towards other Christians. We ought to have a disposition not of thin-skinnedness. We ought to develop thick skin with those that are around us. We, we should expect that those that we're sitting with, those that are here with us, that someone will one day offend us because they're a sinner just like we are. They have bad days where something catches them off guard and they react angrily or in sin and they attack us and they criticize us. We should, ex we should not be surprised when that happens. We should expect it to happen because we're surrounded by sinners just like us who have bad days just like we do. We shouldn't dismiss their sin. We should deal with anger. We should deal with mistreatment. But what's wonderful is that the Bible tells us exactly how we are to do this. Harboring bitterness and cliques and factions has no place in the family of God whatsoever. And in Matthew chapter number 18, Jesus himself gives us steps in how we are to deal with conflict and issues like this among the body of Christ. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go in secret to everyone except him and gossip about it. No, you guys that know the passage, that's not what he says at all, but that's what we do, don't we? We go to everyone else except the person that offended us, right? And we complain about what happened. This is what Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's almost the last thing that we want to do in those situations, if you're like me. I'd rather tell everyone else except that person, right? But Jesus is giving us wisdom here. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If you're able to resolve it, you and them, you've gained your brother. But then it goes further. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then it goes on and it describes in detail church discipline and the exercising of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You might think, does God take it seriously when brothers and sisters in Christ are offended at one another to the point that there is discord and disunity and that they can't talk to each other and they can't sit next to each other, they can't look at each other, they have to avoid each other? He takes it so seriously that the example that Christ gives ends in not counting someone as a believer and counting them as an unbelieving Gentile. Exercising church discipline because there are two marks that are all throughout the, Old the New Testament of a genuine believer. And two of the marks that we see repeated over and over are that a genuine Christian ought to be ready, sitting on the seat ready, leaning forward, ready to repent of their sin that they've committed. And then the second one is that we ought to have the same disposition ready and willing at the drop of a hat to forgive those who repent and ask for forgiveness of us. We ought to be ready and willing and quick to ask for forgiveness and to repent where we have offended and we ought to be just as quick and just as ready and willing to forgive those who come to us and say, will you forgive me? I'm sorry. Our culture is teaching us to be petty, to be thin-skinned, to be easily offended, to cancel those who disagree with us over minor issues. Reject this cultural push to get you to be like this. Parents, do not raise a snowflake that's easily offended. From a young age, you need to begin teaching your children to develop a thick-skinnedness. When your child comes to you and says, so-and-so said that I have buck teeth. Maybe tell them, well, do you have buck teeth? You do kind of have buck teeth, don't you? Your teeth are kind of big. Well, because your head's small and your teeth are big. It's because you're, you know, that's, you're going through an odd stage. It's not that big of a deal. Use these opportunities to teach them how to have thick skin. Not to have a disposition that's thin-skinned and easily offended. Their future spouses will thank you. Raise your sons and daughters to be able to take criticism and for that criticism not to shatter their entire world and ruin their week. Train them that God's Word says better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you know what I need in my life? I need some men in my life, especially as a young man that's trying to raise young children. I need some men in my life that are willing to confront me on my garbage, that are willing to come to me and say, hey, brother, the way that you dealt with your children, the way that you spoke to your wife, that was too much. That was a little bit out of line. You spoke to them in a harsh way. I don't think that they heard you. I need some men in my life that are not afraid of my thin-skinnedness, that are not afraid to offend me because they know that my holiness is more important than my feelings. This is the 
open rebuke of a friend. And, and with those rebukes, I need to have a disposition that is willing and ready to repent from wrongdoing. Receiving rebuke and criticism with a meek and a humble spirit. Do I think? None of us would say, none of us would say I'm perfect. None of us would look at themselves and say, I've got it together, I'm perfect. Then why when we receive rebuke, why when we receive criticism, should we think that we have to defend ourselves? We find out later that Ephraim didn't even have the backing, this thin-skinned tribe. They didn't even have the backing to be able to do what they were offended by. Not only did 18 years pass and they never did anything about this problem of the enemy, but they say that they're offended about battle, so we find out that Jephthah says, oh, you want battle, I'll give you battle. And then 42,000 of them die. Haven't you found this to be the case? That those who are so quick to open their mouth, those who are easily offended write checks that they cannot cash? I'm reminded of a story of D.L. Moody. He was a famous preacher in America. And some uh, man came up to D.L. Moody. A critic came up to him and he said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way that you preach the gospel. Can you imagine, imagine pouring your heart out preaching and then right after that, I, just, I, don't, I don't like the way that you preach the gospel. But Dr. Moody's response, he said, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to learn. Tell me about the method that you use. Notice that for him to respond to that in that way, when someone was coming at him sideways, for him to respond like that means that he didn't view himself very highly, did he? He was able to see, I don't have it all together. There might be a way that I could preach the gospel better. I'm sure there is. So he said, sir, I'm always willing to learn. Tell me about the method that you use. And the man said, I guess I don't really have one. And so Moody said, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you what. I like the way that I do it a lot better than the way that you don't. I like the way that I do it a lot better than the way that you don't do it. Isn't that, have you found that to be the case? Those who are thin-skinned, those who are the critics, those who are the ones that can point out everything that's wrong, usually almost, they almost never have a remedy to how to do it right. But they can be very quick to point out exactly how it's done wrong. Well, Jephthah is less patient and placating to Ephraim, this thin-skinned tribe. He's much less patient than Gideon was. Gideon was able to turn away wrath with soft words. But Jephthah is direct and to the point, and instead of reasoning with them, he exacts immediate vengeance and attacks them directly. This is now friendly fire. He's no longer defending against pagan invaders. He is now attacking his fellow Israelites over a heated dis disagreement. And even more significant is that Jephthah is from, he's a Gileadite, he's from the city of Gilead. What does that mean? It's, it's mentioned several times in this, in this story. Well, if you, if you find out which tribe did this city belong to, you find out that they belong to the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
And if you remember the tribes of Israel, they were represented by the sons of Jacob. But Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, there is no tribe of Joseph. Instead, Joseph had two sons, and his two sons became tribes, the tribes of Manasseh, which was the tribe that the Gileadites were from. That's the tribe that Jephthah is from. And the tribe of Ephraim, this thin-skinned tribe. And so what we find here is that this is a war of Jephthah and the Ephraimites. It's literally civil war between siblings. And God has given the leader the people that they deserve. And He's given the people the leader that they deserve. You may think to yourself, well, who's wrong here? Who's right? Ephraim is clearly wrong. They threatened to burn this man down in his home. They threatened to burn him alive with his family. They've been petty and thin-skinned. They're clearly in the wrong. And yet Jephthah is attacking his own people brutally killing 42,000 Ephraimites instead of diffusing the situation like Gideon did. God here is showing the downward spiral of His children, Israel. The perverse people are getting the leader they deserve and the perverse leader is getting the people that he deserves. That brings us to the, the test of accents. The test of accents. You notice in the story, they fight, and as they're fighting, the Ephraimites are from the other side of the river, the other side of the Jordan. And so the Gileadites, under the direction of Jephthah, they capture the fords of the river where you would cross the river. So they capture those points where the Ephraimites would go over. And they have a test that they come up with because apparently the Ephraimites are not only thin-skinned, but they have a lisp or an accent where they can't pronounce words correctly. And they, they are unable to pronounce the SH sound, Shibboleth. Instead, they say Sibboleth because they cannot pronounce, pronounce it right. So they block these fords and they ask them if they, if they suspect this person is an Ephraimite. He doesn't look right. He looks like an Ephraimite. I'm going to ask him to pronounce this word. I, the, the most famous one in English that I could come up with was tomato, tomato. I've always heard people say that, but I've never met anyone. Do you know anyone that says tomato? Does anyone say that anymore? I don't know if that used to be a thing where people would say tomato and other people would say tomato, but the one that I'm most familiar with is pecan. We have pecan trees in the backyard. Don't shake your head at me. That's the way you say it. It's, it's pronounced pecan. You have pecan trees, pecan pie. We just ate it at Thanksgiving. Um, but there are some that are so pretentious that they pronounce it pecan. That is so pretentious. It sounds, I don't know. Who says pecan? Did oh, wow, there's more than I thought. Is it southern to say pecan? I thought it was southern. Um, my pastor growing up also said pecan because he said that a pecan is what you take on a long trip. Um, <laughs> So, anyways. <laughs> 42,000 people slaughtered. And they, 
he develops this test of accents, the way that you pronounce something, the words that you say can deem, that can judge you, whether you are this or whether you are that. 42,000 men. And again, this is not an invader from the Canaanites. These are not pagan invaders. These are Israelites killing Israelites. This is a new low in the book of Judges. This is the first time in the entire book that a specific number of deaths is given, and it's not for Canaanite deaths, but for Israelite deaths. In every other instance so far in the book, the number of casualties is always given from the enemy. And yet, doesn't that speak for itself? That Israel has become her own worst enemy. Christians, we certainly have a very real and often overlooked enemy in Satan and his minions. But quite often we accuse and blame everything else other than ourselves. There became a very popular phrase when my grandfather was growing up, he would always say something to the effect of Satan made me do it or the devil made me do it. We're very quick to accuse almost everything other than ourselves. Our culture is wicked, the culture that we grew up in. The family that I grew up in was very difficult. My, my father and my mother, the, the home that I raised in is made me the way that I am and that's why I react in anger. My desire for these things is because my father desired these things and his father did and so on. I have a disorder that makes me sin. I have a label on it. Even the doctor has prescribed me with this label of whatever it is and that's what causes me to sin in this way. But if we can get past all of these things, which some of them might have more or less validity to them, we can narrow it down and find that my problem is within most often, my sin and my temptation comes from within. My wicked heart is what tempts me more than anything else. My desire for lust and greed. My drive to selfishly promote and succeed my own dreams and my own desires. Me, me, me. The me monster is the hardest one to kill. The most revealing thing that I have learned from understanding Reformed theology is that I can be my own worst enemy. Jephthah's story ends tragically. It, it mentions that 42,000 Ephraimites fell. That he slaughtered them, it says. And then briefly it mentions at a glance his six-year reign and his death. But let's read verse number 7 again. And I want you to remember, there are minor judges like Ibzan and Elon and Abdon that we're coming to where just a few words or a few sentences are given about the, their, their entire story. There are a few of those judges like that. We'll call them the secondary or minor judges. But among the major judges like Gideon and Othniel and later Samson, who I would say Jephthah is one of them, two chapters is written about him, there's a unique epitaph given to him. Verse number 7 simply says, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Notably, it does not mention the same epitaph 
that the author gives the other prominent judges. If you remember Othniel, it says, in his epitaph, it says, 40 years of rest was brought by Othniel. And then we find 80 years of rest is brought by Ehud. With Jephthah, it simply says he judged for six years and he died. Interestingly, it, it does mention again that Jephthah died as a Gileadite. A Gileadite. He was buried in Gilead. You see, for a judge in Israel, for the one in control of the entire nation, their order of priorities ought to have been Israel as the nation, and then my tribe, Gilead, my city, and then me and my family. That should have been the order of priorities. But what we find from the life of Jephthah is the exact opposite. His priority was number one, Jephthah, number two, Gilead, and then number three, Israel. In fact, so much so that he would start a civil war against his own people. The shocking thing about these last two chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12, throughout the story of Jephthah, have you ever heard the phrase, the silence is deafening? The silence of Yahweh is deafening in chapters 11 and 12. Because throughout the other chapters of these major judges, we find the Lord communing and talking with and directing His judge, His man for the time. And Yahweh's silence is deafening. In fact, if you remember, if you turn back to Judges chapter number 10, and if you skim through beginning in verses 6 and down, you'll remember that the people again did which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and it lists the seven gods that they were worshiping, the gods of Baal. And then in verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. Verse number 11, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from? And, he, and then he lists the seven nations that he had saved them from. And tragically, in verse 13, the Lord says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. And from then on, until past where we are now, verse chapter number 12, the Lord is silent. He is leaving them to their own devices. Israel has counterfeit repentance and He will not hear them. The Lord does, however, bring victory through the hand of Jephthah. But we cannot interpret this response of the Lord to Israel as being because Israel merited this response. The Lord's acting to save His people can only be interpreted as merciful and gracious. Because the Lord is more determined to save His people than they are to turn back to Him. The Lord is more determined to save this self-centered, rebellious nation than they are to save themselves. And finally, we come to chapter, verse number 8 with the last three of the minor judges with Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Let's read verse number 8. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. 
And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. And he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Ibzan, his name means swift. And unlike Jephthah, he is the, the next judge to be mentioned after Jephthah, and he is in stark contrast to Jephthah. If you remember, Jephthah only had one heir, his daughter, who died, leaving him with no future inheritance, no future lineage, rather. But unlike Jephthah, Ibzan has 30 sons to continue his family into the future. And not just 30 sons, but 30 daughters. And Ibzan is very political. And he has his 30 sons, and he, he marries them to 30 other of the clansmen and the tribes outside of him, Israelites. He finds daughters for them outside to make alliances. And to further his power and his alliances, he marries off his daughters to clansmen that are not his own. It says here, interestingly, that Ibzan's hometown is Bethlehem. We'll find the coming King David is from the city of Bethlehem. And the, com the coming King Jesus is from the city of Bethlehem. And then we find Elon, the Zebulonite. His name means service. I'm sorry, his name means oak, like the tree. And he's only distinguished here by his tenure of ten years and his city, the city that he's from, Ajalon, which phonetically in the Hebrew, Ajalon, his name is Elon, his city was named after him. That's all that we know about him. And finally we get to Abdon, whose name means service. And Abdon's family was the perfect royal family consisting of 40 sons and 30 grandsons, 70 future descendants. This mirrors Gideon. Remember, Gideon had 70 sons. But he also mirrors Jair, the other minor uh, judge from Judges 10, who had 30 sons that rode on 30 donkeys. And so you find that Abdon is like Gideon and Jair. He had 70 sons that rode on 70 donkeys. You might be reading these minor judges and think, why in the world are these in the book of Judges? What is the purpose that the author has to give us these accounts? It's kind of strange. Seventy sons riding on seventy donkeys. What in the world does that mean? I'd like to offer you two possible purposes of these minor judges where just few details are given about them. The first one is, it reminds the reader that the book is not meant to provide an exhaustive account of everything and of every detail that happened during this time period in Israel. There were others that were not mentioned. But these judges have been selected then for a, for a purpose by the author. These judges all fit the theme and the narrative that 
the author of Judges is giving us to teach us the lesson that is to be learned. And secondly, it reminds us that the times of oppression and peace were intermittent. Intermittent. Israel's time was more like a roller coaster with ups and downs than it was like the climb up a mountain. These short narratives of tranquility that we find in these minor judges, we should read this, this time of peace and as we're this far into the book of Judges, we should read them and think, okay, but what's next? We know that there's going to be a downward spiral very soon because we've just read about three times of peace. Disaster is right around the corner. In conclusion, I, as I was thinking through the timeline of the book of Judges, I saw a very good timeline that showed how many years there were for Moses and Joshua and Judges. And as I was reading through, as I read the Bible, maybe you read through the books of Moses and you read the story of Moses and you think, okay, Moses had about this much time leading Israel. And then after him, Joshua came, so he probably had about the same amount of time. And then you have Judges and they had about that amount of time. And then you get to Saul, King Saul, and he probably had about that amount of time. And then you get King David and he had about the same amount of time. And yet what we find is Moses had roughly 40 years of wilderness wandering, his time leading Israel. We read through all the accounts of those stories, we think maybe it was longer than it was, 40 years. Then we get to Joshua, and we find his conquest and victory, and almost the opposite of judges, but general faithfulness that we find through the people of Israel and through Joshua's leadership of just 25 years. Only 25 years we have with Joshua. And then if you skip Judges, you get to King Saul. Again, about 40 years, just like Moses. 40 years of his kingship. You get to King David. Guess how many years? Right at 40 years of King David's kingship. But if you go right back to right in the middle, Moses, Joshua, Judges, Saul, David, right in the middle, it's not 40 years that we have this downward spiral, this constant sin cycle of rejecting the Lord, of serving pagan gods, of crying out for the Lord to save them from their oppressor. It's not 40 years. Most scholars agree that it is over 350 years of Israel's time in this book of Judges that's given to us. 350 years where God's people have a judge and the judge will bring them peace for his lifetime. Maybe six years. Maybe 40 years. Maybe an extraordinary case like Ehud of 80 years. But at the end of those 80 years, it goes right back to disaster again. And every time it's the same thing. Over 350 years, this spans generations of the same thing. And Maybe you, you've had the wrong idea that if we can just get some political leaders, if we could elect Jesse Pickett as the next president of the United States, I'm confident that we would have a president that was a right, upright man, that we could be confident that he would do his best to lead us in righteousness. And we could be confident for about 30 years 
if he could be president for 30 years. Maybe 30 years. Maybe 40 years. Maybe 50 years if he lived a very good life. And then he would pass. And then we would, left, we would be left to who knows what. The book of Judges ought to have us looking forward, just like it did for Israel. Not to a judge or a ruler or a king that's just going to die and leave us to ourselves. But it should have us looking to King Jesus, who's not going to reign for six years or 40 years or 80 years, but He's going to rule and reign in righteousness for all of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We know that in it we find truth and life. Lord, grass withers and flower fades, but Your Word will stand forever. So Lord, we pray that You will help us to build our faith based upon Your Word. Would You help us to be men and women and families of faith? as we are on, on, uh, under attack from every side and under attack from within. Help us to realize that sometimes our own worst enemy is staring at us in the mirror. Lord, may we be quick to repent and quick to forgive. Lord, would You grow in us the graces that we find displayed in our Lord and Savior Christ. Lord, would you do all of these things for your name's sake? It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.